0: Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter Twelve Top of the League. It was a World Cup summer of Spanish sunshine and sangria that should have shortened the wait for the new season but only heightened the anticipation. Watford supporters were bursting with pride as their super-sub Jerry Armstrong starred for Northern Ireland, scoring the goal that beat the hosts. Graham Taylor rang Armstrong at his hotel every few days to offer encouragement. Keep running at them, because they are absolutely petrified of you, he said. Armstrong's reward once the World Cup was over was an extra three days off before pre-season training. The publication of the first division fixture list sharpened Taylor's focus. Watford's opening game in the top flight would be against Everton at Vicarage Road. After that came Southampton, Manchester City, Swansea and West Brom. The true giants were on the horizon, with the sternest test beginning in late November, with a run of games that would bring them up against four of the previous season's top five. Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool and Ipswich Town. Taylor knew their early opponents could not be taken lightly, but there was nothing to fear. He wanted to get stuck in straight away. My view from the start was that we were in the first division by right, says Taylor. We were not going to set about it in anything other than a wholehearted manner. I told the players we would not be changing our style, and that we were going to attack these teams as much as possible. I said that if the other teams showed us how good they were, and we got our bottom smacked once in a while, fair enough. But I am telling you, some of them are not as good as they think they are. I knew we had to be fantastically fit. We were already a very fit squad, but we had to go up another level. We had to be able to play at a very high intensity from the start and sustain it for 90 minutes. When it's nil-nil with five minutes to go, you pick up the pace looking for the winner. I told them that we were to make the assumption that we were 1-0 down at the start. Let's play from the first minute as if we are chasing the game in the last ten. On the pre-season trip to Norway, Taylor pushed his players almost to breaking point. It was relentless. Scandinavia was chosen because the milder summer would allow the players to train long and hard. But there was a snag. Norway was hit by a heat wave. Taylor had to rethink his strategy without cutting corners. So the players were up before dawn every morning. They had to run to the training ground, about a mile away from their accommodation, which was basic, to say the least. It was a boot camp, says Les Taylor. You wouldn't be able to get away with it today. They'd do a twelve-minute run, lapping the pitch and jog back for breakfast, before running back for another session. They were spared, toiling in the harsh mid-afternoon heat, but would fit in another session once the sun had ducked down for the day. There was a lot of running. They hardly saw a football. That trip was the hardest I've ever been on, says Ian Bolton. It was horrendous, like being in the army. We ran everywhere, to training, back from training. The regime was fierce, but I don't think we could have been better prepared physically for Division I, and because we were so fit, we gained a mental strength. We knew very few teams would be as strong as us. We were doing three sessions a day. We played four games in eight days against tiddly Norwegian teams who were really up for it, and we were expected to play at a high tempo. It was brutal. The manager killed us that pre-season. It was literally morning, noon and night, and oh, we grumbled, says Wilf rostron but we didn't let him hear us, because it was pointless grumbling to him. We didn't necessarily enjoy it, but our fitness improved significantly that summer. Everyone assumed Taylor would strengthen the team, but he kept the checkbook locked firmly away. The newspapers did their bit to tease the supporters, linking the club with some high-profile figures. Liam Brady was one. The former Arsenal midfielder was leaving Juventus and apparently wanted to return to England. Bertie Mee said, That's a nice one. Who wants to chip in for the first week's wages? Another name that came up was Tony Woodcock, a European Cup-winning striker with Nottingham Forest who had been a hit with FC Cologne in Germany. Taylor was confident his squad was ready for the 1st Division and that he didn't need anyone new. The question now was whether the 1st Division was ready for Watford. Reporters from the national papers descended on Vicarage Road the day before the Everton match with only one question in mind. Even the appearance of Kenny Jackett's girlfriend on page 3 of The Sun could not divert their attention from a ready-made story. Would Jerry Armstrong, Northern Ireland's hero in Valencia, be in the side. Taylor had a few problems to solve before settling on his team for that first historic match. Steve Sims tweaked his knee a couple of days before the game. I tell people my knee cost me at least 50 caps. And the obvious replacement, Steve Terry, was suspended after picking up a booking too many at the end of the previous season. Taylor decided Jackett would partner Ian Bolton in the centre of the defence, That left a gap in midfield, as Les Taylor had injured his calf during pre-season. Although he was fit, the manager decided to put him on the bench, so Luther Blissett slotted into midfield alongside Jan Lohman, leaving Armstrong to partner Ross Jenkins in attack. Everton's players thought they knew what to expect. Their manager, Howard Kendall, had braced them for a bombardment. We knew they'd be direct. Howard had told us exactly what they'd do. "'says Graham Sharp, who played up front for the Toffees. "'I remember the dressing-rooms were very cramped "'and the stadium was modest, "'but it was a sunny day and the ground was full. "'There was a sense of excitement "'and the place was so bright and vibrant, "'everything yellow and red. "'I wouldn't say we were sucked in by that, "'but my first impression was that Vicarage Road "'was a lovely, friendly place. "'Until we got out on the pitch. "'We knew we were in for a hard game. "'It's easy to say... Cut out the long ball to Ross Jenkins. It's another thing dealing with it. Ross had a height advantage, but he also had a technical ability that was overlooked by a lot of people. He could cushion the ball and lay it off so well, and then he'd be running into space. You got to the stage where in trying to stop him, you were fouling him, and Watford was so good at set pieces that giving away free kicks got you into trouble. The first goal came from a Nigel Callahan free kick that Everton failed to clear. Armstrong was loitering to score one for the record books with a jab of his left foot. In the second half, more pressure. Another mistake. Another goal. I'd asked our goalkeeping coach, Alan Hodgkinson, what type of situation he least liked to deal with, says Graham Taylor. He said that goalkeepers hate it when there's a free kick on the left, taken right-footed so it is whipped in at head height with pace. Then you have people running across the face of goal to get a glancing header on it. So I thought, right. We'll give them plenty of that. We became masters at it and the second goal against Everton was a prime example. Pat Rice whipped the free kick in. Jerry ran across and the goalkeeper couldn't deal with it. Neville Southall, the Everton keeper, was caught out by the flight of the cross. He managed to catch it only for his momentum to carry body and ball over the line. 2-0. We'd been practising driving these crosses in just above head height with pace, says Rice. I hit one, really driving it, but I mishid it. I completely sliced it. I was turning away and looking up in the air thinking, you prat, when I heard the crowd cheer and saw the ref pointing at the centre spot having given a goal. Never in a million years did I mean it, but I'm claiming it. They tried to put it down as an own goal. No way. They all can, and that one's mine. Three days later, Watford steamrolled Southampton at the Dell. They knocked them flat, creating chance after chance, 26 in all. It was a pummeling that left the Saints manager Laurie McMenamy as stunned as the 7-1 a couple of years before. For Taylor, it proved another point. Southampton's midfielder, Alan Ball, a World Cup winner in 1966, had been on the same flight as the Watford team when they travelled to Australia for their end-of-season tour in May. Allen was going over to play in Australia for the summer to earn a bit of money, says Taylor. On the way out, one or two of my lads had a bit too much to drink, encouraged by Allen. They were all having a bit of a joke, and Allen was taking the mickey about the long ball and said, Wait until you get in the first division. We'll show you how to play football. It was all fairly good-natured but I was getting a bit wound up. When we beat Southampton 4-1, I waited for Bawley as they came off, typical of me really, and I said, not bad for a side that can't fucking play, are we? He was as good as gold and took it well. He said, well done, you took us to pieces. During the game, Southampton's midfielder, David Armstrong, turned to Callahan and said, you'll shock a few if you keep playing like this. Watford's reputation may have preceded them but few seemed prepared for the onslaught. For some, the neat passing they'd watched on their televisions over the summer had gone to their heads, and that suited Watford down to the ground. Everyone had seen the World Cup, and they all wanted to play out from the back, says Wilfrostron. Nearly everyone we came up against early on thought they were Brazil. It wasn't necessarily the players trying to be Brazilian, but a lot of the managers thought this was the way to play. Without realising that a lot of very good defenders kick it out when it needs to be kicked out. Too many of them were taught to pass it around and they had such a shock when we were getting at them and hassling them. We had Luther, Ross and Jerry chasing them down. A lot of teams were being asked to try something they'd not done before and they weren't comfortable with it. That played into our hands and we caught some of them cold. The media did us a favour, says Les Taylor. They basically said we couldn't play football and that all we did was boot it aimlessly up the pitch. The longer they believed that, the better it was for us, because we knew what we were doing. John Barnes, Nigel Callaghan, Luther, Kenny... You're telling me they couldn't play a football? The guys who were writing us off didn't know what they were watching. They should have won the third match against Manchester City at Main Road, too, but they failed to make the most of a great opportunity. City's goalkeeper, Joe Corrigan, was injured after five minutes and they had to put a defender, Bobby MacDonald, in goal. Watford pressed hard, but for once they failed to create a meaningful effort to test the stand-in keeper, and lost out to a Dennis Stewart goal. Swansea City next. The Welsh side had clung to Watford's coattails as they climbed out of the 4th Division in 1978, and went through the 3rd the following year. Swansea leapfrogged Watford by reaching the 1st Division a year before them, topping the league at Christmas 1982. They were the success story of the early 80s, until Watford came along. The parallels were remarkable. Luther Blissett, now back in attack, got his first goal of the season from the penalty spot as Watford beat Swansea 2-1. Four days later, the Hornets made history. Like Watford, West Brom had made a good start with three wins from their first four games. They matched Watford for effort until just before half-time when Blissett scored. Albion's spirited resistance melted away in the second half as Les Taylor and Blissett made it 3-0. The results were read out at Vicarage Road. Both Manchester United and City had won and were level on points with Watford, but the Hornets had a better goal difference, so it all depended on the result from Anfield. Of all teams, it was Luton Town that had helped Watford reach the top by holding Liverpool to a 3-all draw. Shortly before five o'clock on September the 11th, 1982, it was confirmed. Watford were top of the Football League for the first, and so far only, time. Seven years earlier, they hit rock bottom, 24th place in Division Four, after losing their opening three games. Now they were on top of the world and could take a deep breath and savour the moment. Elton John had delayed a trip to the West Indies so he could see the game. That night, Graham Taylor headed off to the Royal Albert Hall with a spring in his step. Bertie, me, and his wife Doris had got tickets for Rita and myself for the last night of the proms. We were all there singing Jerusalem in full voice. That was the happiest night of my life, being at the proms with Rita and knowing we were top of the league. A Nottingham Forest supporter dressed as a clown invaded the pitch as Watford slumped to a 2-0 defeat at the city ground. Whether it was a searing comment on Watford's style or not, Brian Clough failed to see the joke. With a typical display of eccentricity, he took it upon himself to haul the supporter off the pitch and deliver him into the arms of a police officer. Taylor may have felt like doing the same to one or two of his players that afternoon. It was a reminder that the top teams could swat you away with relative ease if you failed to fight for everything. Taylor always intended to hit his players hard the first time they failed to live up to his expectations. "'We had played pretty badly,' says Armstrong. "'We came in on Monday morning and were told we'd be training in the afternoon as well. "'That wasn't unusual. "'But it was the same on Tuesday. "'The same on Wednesday. "'Morning and afternoon. "'Plenty of running.' until there was nothing left in the tank. It was unbelievable. He hammered us. He didn't say it was because of the result or the performance, but we drew our own conclusion. Usually the lads were very bubbly, but when we came in on the Thursday morning, everyone was quiet. We were sitting down, waiting to go out, and no one was talking because we were on the verge of cracking. Graham came in and he was bouncing and bubbling in great spirits, cracking jokes and laughing. To be quite frank, I probably wasn't the only player who wanted to whack him one. Taylor looked at the glum faces and said, I was talking to Rita last night, and she thought perhaps I was being a bit hard on you, and I agreed. So get yourselves changed into your tracksuits and meet me at the hotel for a champagne breakfast on me. We thought he was winding us up, says Armstrong. But we headed over to the Ladbrook Hotel, and sure enough we had sausage, bacon, egg, the full fry-up, Martin Patchen nudged me and said I wonder if we could get a pint with this I said You've got to be joking Half ten in the morning He'll chew our heads off Oh go on Jerry Ask the boss for us So I asked and GT said Great idea Let's get some jugs of lager here shall we Immediately the mood changed Everyone was smiling and joking And we had a real party atmosphere Graham left around noon And told us not to overdo it so we stuck around for another couple of hours and got ourselves home. Friday's training session was short and fun, all games and little competitions, relay races and five-a-side. The spirit was great. On Saturday, Sunderland visited Vicarage Road, and Watford were in the mood to smash them into the middle of next week. Armstrong had been dropped to the bench, but as he sat in the dressing room, he sensed the energy coiled up in his teammates. They were like... A pack of caged tigers waiting to be released. Sunderland had Jimmy Neckel playing for them. I'd played with Jimmy for Northern Ireland, so I knew him pretty well, says Armstrong. During the warm-up I went over to have a chat with him, and I warned him. I warned him that if they weren't careful, they were going to get annihilated. He brushed it off, but as I sat on the bench, I wasn't wondering if we'd win. I was wondering how many we'd win by. Graham had played it absolutely perfectly. You couldn't do it every week because the trick would wear off. But after our first bad performance of the season, he had hit us hard to get us going again. And it worked brilliantly. After a shaky start, everything fell into place. I cleared one off the line in the first five minutes, says Steve Terry. We could have been two nil down before we scored, but once we got the first one, we were on a roll, says Bolton. Callahan scored the first two, both headers, then Blissett and Jenkins got a goal each. Watford led 4-0 at half-time, and Taylor wanted more of the same. When we got in the dressing room, Graham wouldn't let us sit down, says Rice. We were stretching and jogging on the spot. Billy Hales got us to go through our pre-match routines again. Graham wanted us to keep moving while he gave us the team talk. Basically, all he said was, get out there and do the same again. The players delivered. Blissit ended up with four goals, completing his first hat-trick for the club. Sunderland were bamboozled by the constant pressure and by the end they didn't know where they were or what they were doing. It ended. 8-0. People ask if I felt sorry for Sunderland, says Jenkins. The answer is not at all. It's a battlefield out there. The spectator can feel sorry for someone, But when you're in that position, you're programmed to perform a certain way and we just kept going. Graham wasn't going to let us cruise along at 4-0 because you never know what might happen. We didn't have enough experience to take our foot off the pedal and ease up, so it was a no-mercy situation. In the end, the opposition just fell apart. That evening, Steve Sherwood's second son, Craig, was born at the hospital next to the ground. The other players joked he wasn't called on to do much there either. Wilf Roston teased his family and friends in the Northeast about the result for years. Gary Porter, one of the apprentices, was travelling home to Sunderland to see his family after playing for Watford's youth team at Millwall that day. I got off the train at Newcastle and asked someone what the football results were. He says, "This guy said it's fantastic. The Maccams got beat eight nothing." My dad was a Sunderland fan and he got ribbed about it when he went for his paint at the Working Men's Club on Sunday lunchtime. He told them, I'm a Watford fan now. Five games slipped by before Watford won again. Life in the first division was not all sunshine and smiles. At the end of October they surrendered a two-goal lead at Notts County and lost 3-2, falling to eighth place in the league, which turned out to be their lowest position of the season. Some difficult matches were looming, and the critics sensed they were about to be proved right. Watford had burned brightly, but briefly. Now they would find out what the First Division had to offer. In early November they travelled to White Hart Lane to meet Tottenham Hotspur, who were media darlings then, as they are now. Watford were about to discover what happened when you ruffled such neatly arranged aristocratic feathers. The newspapers had billed it as a clash of cultures, Beauty against a beast, they called it. Spurs had all the fancy players. They were the architects of the beautiful game, and we were the demons of football, apparently, says John Barnes. I remember they made fun of us in the warm-up. They came out and kicked the ball as high in the air as they could. Glenn Hoddle was laughing about it. Watford had not travelled into London to conform to stereotypes. We had so much belief and desire because of the things Graham had drummed into us, says Barnes. Before games like this, he used to remind us they were just another team. Spurs, the Sophisticates, had Hoddle and Ricky Villa in midfield. Watford had Les Taylor and Kenny Jackett, who quickly set about cramping their style. It used to annoy me that people criticised us for closing down good players, says Bolton. What? So you're supposed to stand off Glenn Hoddle and let him have time and space to play his game, are you? Let him hurt you with a pass because he could. He was a fantastic player. Never in a million years. You have to get in his face. Every time he turned, Les was there. And if it wasn't Les, it was someone else. We weren't a negative team. We didn't go out to stifle the game and make it tight. But if the opposition has an outstanding player, you had to cut them out so that you could play your own game. Glenn criticised us afterwards because he didn't enjoy playing in the game. The media criticised us because they'd come to watch Hoddle spray the ball about. But on the other hand, when we passed it long... We were just booting it. In the end it was a waste of breath trying to explain to people what we were trying to do. That day the result said it all. Watford suffocated Tottenham. They kept running and chasing and they put the Spurs defence under pressure. I remember hearing Hoddle say, Don't worry, they'll blow up, they'll blow up, says Rice. But we didn't blow up. As they waited for a corner to be taken, Hoddle turned to Sims and said, all you do is hit long balls. But you're the best striker of a long ball in the country, Sims replied. You should play for us. With three minutes left, Watford got their chance and the journalists in the press box were handed a hasty rewrite. We had a throw-in near their box, says Les Taylor. Normally I covered the edge of the box, but for some reason I run forward into the area as Luther took the throw. I could hear Graham shouting, No, Les, no! It's probably the only time I ever disobeyed Graham Taylor. The ball fell to me, and I poked it in. When the celebrations died down, I took a lot of stick down on the bench for telling Les to stay where he was, says Graham Taylor. In the dressing room, the manager joked that Les Taylor would not be getting his win bonus because he'd ignored specific instructions. Here, Guffer, Les Taylor replied. Just leave it to me. The flip side of that goal is that Les Taylor was Glenn Hoddle's man, says Bolton, and Hoddle didn't track back and mark him late in the game. He let him go. That tells another story. The two managers met the press after the game. There weren't the organised formal press conferences managers have today. Instead, the journalists huddled round hunting a story. It's not called the press pack for nothing. They had their agenda, and they pushed Tottenham's manager, Keith Birkinshaw to say something that would further it. Were Watford too physical? Was their style entertaining? Is the long ball good for the English game? Birkinshaw sidestepped them all. "'Then he was asked, "'Would you play their way?' Birkinshaw replied as diplomatically as he could, "'No, because I'd have to change a number of my players.' "'That was enough for a juicy headline. "'I wouldn't play the Watford way,' says Spurs boss. "'The blue touch paper had been lit. "'One columnist described Watford as a pack of wild dogs. "'Another said the game would be taken back to the Dark Ages,' if everyone played like Taylor's team. Danny Blanchflower, captain of Tottenham's double-winning side in 1961, called Taylor the most perceptive manager to emerge in the past decade. But even that wasn't endorsement enough for those in the press who had made their mind up. Geoff Powell of the Daily Mail says his criticism stemmed from a concern for the future of the England team. During the autumn, Bobby Robson, the England manager, asked Taylor to run the national youth team, and take charge at the European Youth Championships at the end of the season. The Football Association and its Director of Coaching, Charles Hughes in particular, wanted the next generation of England players to be more direct. I was full of admiration for what Watford did as a club and for what Taylor had achieved, says Powell. It was significant, but my concern was how was it going to affect the game in this country. Watford did what was necessary to get results with the players they had, and it was effective. But I didn't think it was suitable for the best players in the country to play that way. Charles Hughes was an advocate of the long ball game. Then there was Graham, Howard Wilkinson and others and there was a danger that if everyone played that way, you'd change the game. Kids were being encouraged to hit the centre forward. There was an element of brutality to it. Watford weren't a nasty team but they were extremely physical. They were, literally, putting noses out of joint. It was effective but it wasn't aesthetic. As a lover of the game, it was a style that did not please me. Instead, it was a mathematical approach that took the creativity and artistry out of the game. It was regimented and formulaic, and I think now the Route One style has been made largely redundant in this country. I admired that there was more than one way to skin a cat, and I recognized Watford were an underdog achieving tremendous things. It was a lovely club to visit, and they did a lot of good, and all those elements I applauded. My objection was nothing personal against Graham. He may have thought that it was, but it wasn't. The controversy raged. Everyone from Don Howe to Brian Clough was asked his opinion. Taylor tried to point out that Liverpool were the most effective users of the long pass in the country. Beaten managers fell back on it as an excuse, and the newspapers were happy to air their moans. Jimmy Gilligan says, I was a 17-year-old boy, and I scored twice against Manchester City at home. I was expecting there'd be a bit in the papers, but all they wrote about was City's manager John Bond saying that the ball must have been screaming because it spent so much time in the air. The press was very negative at times, says Graham Taylor. I am the son of a sports writer and I like and respect a lot of journalists, but it went too far. My father worked for a local paper, which is a different thing. He could criticise someone and bump into the person in the street the next day and talk it over. That relationship keeps things in perspective, The national boys got carried away, and there was a herd instinct to it I didn't like. People had a go at us, but we were in the top four almost all season. You can't be in the top four if all you're doing is whacking the ball and chasing it. I prided myself on knowing what we were doing. When we were challenging the big boys and people said we were just kick and rush, I would argue that it showed their total ignorance. We knew what we were doing, where the ball was going, where the players were supposed to be. It was not based on good fortune – It was based on a style of play that placed an emphasis on getting the ball in the net. I take great offence at people who think what we were doing was an accident. They said we didn't use the midfield players. We did, but they took the ball from our front players, not our defenders. We didn't know the definition then, but Kenny Jackett and Les Taylor were great holding midfield players. We had four forwards who could attack and score goals, and I will always maintain it was very exciting for our supporters. We were always trying to win games and score goals. We invited two of the main critics, Jeff Powell and Brian Glanville, to come and watch us training. Spend a week with us, see what it was we did. How many times did they come? None. I know Graham bumped into Powell in a lift once, and he must have been so tempted to press the stop button and hit him one, says Ian Bolton. He did have a word at one point, and it died down a bit, but the criticism was always there. Nottingham Forest paid Watford the ultimate compliment a few days after the Spurs game, when the debate was at its height. The Milk Cup third-round match at the city ground was the definition of an end-to-end encounter. Watford were met with an equal and opposite force, and Forest beat them at their own game, attacking relentlessly. Neither side held back. Watford took an early lead, but had to substitute Steve Sims, who had twisted his knee that afternoon, and hoped to get away with it. Forest won 7-3. It was one of those nights when nothing went right at the back, says John Ward. I usually didn't say anything to Graham about what he should say after a game, but I did on this occasion. As we walked back to the dressing room, I said, Maybe it's best not to have a go at them. It's 7-3, but they've given it a real go. I knew that if a team really got hold of us, we might get badly beaten once or twice, says Taylor, so I had to recognize the difference between a defeat when they needed a rollicking or a defeat where I needed to explain why we had to carry on playing the way we were. In the dressing-room the players were deadly quiet, wondering what the manager was going to say. ''Well, lads,'' Taylor started, ''what can I say?'' ''It didn't come off, did it?'' At that moment, Brian Clough swung the dressing-room door open, hitting Taylor's back, and said, ''Hey, you lot, I love you. Your spirit, your attitude, fantastic.'' Entering the opposition's dressing-room uninvited after a game was a definite no-no, and Taylor was trying to shut the door on Clough. "'Unlucky, Graham,' he said. "'See you in the boardroom for a drink.' Some of the First Division clubs seemed to consider Watford unwelcome guests at the party. "'It was a real eye-opener going to the boardrooms up and down the country because you found such a variation,' says Muir Stratford. Everton were tremendous and we got on very well, whereas Liverpool, under Sir John Smith, gave the impression that they couldn't understand why they had to play people like us. It was the same in London. Going to Highbury was a total pleasure. Going to Tottenham was completely the opposite. Manchester City, with their chairman Peter Swales, was another one. I think he resented us going there at all. Those first experiences have formed my affection, or otherwise, for those clubs to this day. Taylor barred his players from speaking to the press after the 4-2 win at Arsenal. John Barnes and Steve Sherwood had been outstanding. They wanted to speak to Pat Rice, who was returning to Highbury for the first time, but Taylor knew the questions would all be about the style of play. Watford was second in the table and some of the newspapers were fretting they might win the league. As we left Highbury that day, I was so, so happy, he says. Everyone had talked about the way we played, but there was no better way to respond than by scoring four goals away from home. It showed people we weren't going to slip away quietly. Those helium-filled thoughts of winning the league were punctured by a defeat against Manchester United and a trip to Anfield that demonstrated the chasm that separated Liverpool from the rest. Even Taylor had conceded that winning the title at the first attempt might be the worst thing to happen to Watford. The way they were sliced apart by Liverpool in the first half "'suggested there was little danger of it actually happening. "'On the coach to the ground, I was reading the match programme. "'says Ian Bolton. "'You can't help but look at the list of honours "'and then read the names on the back. "'Then you see the stadium, and you begin to feel tense. "'I can understand why a lot of teams were beaten before they got there. "'Perhaps we were too.' Graham had a saying, "'Take away the stadium and all the trimmings "'and imagine we're playing Liverpool in a local park.' It's just eleven against eleven. Well, that day we came up against a better eleven. We went out to warm up at twenty to three, and the place was empty. Someone said, You wait till kick-off, and they were right. The noise was incredible. They played You'll Never Walk Alone, and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing on end. This time the papers called it Dalgleish and Rush against Kick and Rush, and Watford had to admit they had no answer to Dalgleish and Rush. Liverpool's central defenders handled Blissett and Jenkins, while at the other end Ian Rush and Kenny Dalgleish tormented Bolton and Sims. Wilf Rostron conceded two penalties. I couldn't get out of either one. One of them, I was on the line and the ball hit my hand. The other, I lunged at Dalgleish when he was going to score anyway. And Liverpool were three ahead at half-time. I was on the bench and I was admiring their forward play, says John Ward. Rush and Dalgleish were absolutely majestic. As Simsy walked in at half-time, he said, Dear me, I couldn't get near him, Wardy." Taylor walked into the dressing room and kept it simple. You got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out of it, before walking straight out again. Their front two were giving us a hard time, says Sims. At half-time, Ian suggested we swap over, but I said, no, we'll get it right. We did do better in the second half, pulled a goal back and nearly got a second. If we'd managed that, we would have had them on the ropes. We were on top and Liverpool were just clearing their lines. Graham soonest said, What the hell's going on here? We're playing like Watford. Liverpool stretched well clear after Christmas. By the end of February... They were 14 points ahead and the title was in the bag before April was out. Watford was second and allowing themselves to think of qualifying for Europe. They had become a team that would either win or lose, drawing just twice in 30 league matches. With Jerry Armstrong injured after breaking his ankle while playing for the reserves in October and Ross Jenkins ordered to rest because of a persistent groin injury, Taylor had to find a new strike partner for Blissett. He gave Jimmy Gilligan a few games but recognised that the burden was too great for such a young player. Instead he moved John Barnes in from the wing and over the second half of the season he and Blissett formed an understanding the equal of any in the country. Blissett had scored 14 goals in 28 matches before linking up with Barnes and he added another 16 in the 18 games they played together as strike partners. Jenkins was 31 and his testimonial season had been spoiled by the injury. Watford hosted Liverpool, the Champions-elect, on the final day of the season, but Jenkins remembers the day less fondly. "'I got called in on the last day of the season, and was told that was it,' he says. "'My departure from Watford wasn't that nice. I'd had this long injury, and the medical people never really got to grips with it. I wasn't able to recover from it. A few days before the final league game of the season, Watford played against Luton Town,' in a testimonial game for Jenkins. Luton's First Division status hung in the balance. They had to go to Manchester City on the last day, knowing they had to win to stay up. But they fielded a strong team. Jenkins had played for Watford when they were top and bottom of the Football League, and was disappointed it was coming to an end. "'I was unreliable in terms of fitness, and so they couldn't afford me,' he says. "'I think perhaps Graham was disappointed he had to move me on too.' but when you are the manager you have to get the best out of a player and work out when to get rid of him. We'd always respected each other and I think we held our own with each other. When he rested me, I'd tell him he was wrong and look him in the eye while he was doing it. But when the time comes to sit across the table and one of you has to say, OK, that's it, and the other has to say, well, let's see what's next. It's not easy. With the Championship sealed so early, Liverpool had taken their foot off the gas. They were on a run of four defeats and two draws, but that did not detract from Watford's win that afternoon. Martin Patching and Blissett scored in a 2-1 win. Paul Franklin was handed his debut at centre-half after a fine performance against Luton in the testimonial. I Mark Kenny Dalgleish, and at the end of the game we were doing a lap of honour. I thought, I could get used to this, he says. They were left to wait for the results to come in. Manchester United needed a draw at Notts County to clinch second place. With two minutes to go, they were leading 2-1. But Rashid Harkook and Ian McParland scored two very late goals to turn the tables on United. It was confirmed. Watford were runners-up in the Football League. The second-best team in the country. Better than everybody, bar Liverpool. Watford invited Liverpool's players, staff and directors to join their traditional final-day celebrations in the boardroom. They were flying off from Heathrow for an end-of-season trip at about midnight, so we asked if they'd like to stay, says Eddie Plumley. Everyone would come into the boardroom for a few drinks and something to eat. The players and staff and their wives, the groundsmen, everyone connected with the club. It was such a fantastic evening, because someone else then saw the real Watford and how we used to do things we sent a couple of apprentices up the road to get 50 portions of fish and chips. There they were. Bob Paisley and Elton John, Graham Taylor and Kenny Dalgleish and the rest, sitting round the boardroom table, eating chips out of the paper. Watford may have needed a bit of good fortune at the death, but the league table never lies. We lost 15 games and conceded 57 goals and finished second says Taylor. How can you lose 15 games and finish runners-up? Well, you could do it then by playing the way we did. I wasn't particularly keen to lose 15 matches and concede 57 goals, but the object was to try to win every game. In trying to win, we did lose games. To be truthful, says Pat Rice, I thought that if we could survive in Division I, it would have been a good achievement. I never thought in a million years we could finish second. The story told in Terry Chalice's painting had come true. Watford had clambered out of the lower division swamps, crossed dozens of pitches, and climbed the highest mountain in English football. They hadn't quite knocked the liver bird off its perch, but they had come remarkably close. The critics pointed out that 71 points would rarely be enough to ensure second place, but Taylor had the perfect riposte. The record books will always read Champions, Liverpool, Runners-Up, Watford. No one can ever take that away from us. End of chapter 12. Next time. Watford say farewell to Luther, as their favourite son heads to Milan.